Welcome back to another episode of Health Points. I'm Ben Wilkins and my co-host is on the line too. Do you want to say hi, Pete? Hi, everyone. Today we have Paul and Nicola from Gripper Ball. Uh, Paul is the co-founder and CEO of Gripper Ball, a university spin-out from Imperial College University in London. He has a PhD in neuroscience and a background in digital health. He has 12 publications in neuroscience and neurorehabilitation and won multiple awards for health innovation. And Nicola is the clinical director at Grippable, with over 30 years of operational and clinical leadership of hand therapy services. She's an occupational therapist and runs a private practice with expertise in the management of musicians. She is a partner in NES Hand Therapy Training and the president of the International Federation of Societies for Hand Therapy. Uh, Nicola, Paul, it's fantastic to have you both on the show today. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Uh, so what would be great is, first of all, rather than me trying to explain what Grippable do, if one of you can give us an overview in a couple of sentences, what Grippable does. I'm happy to, uh, to lead on that. So at Grippable, uh, we're developing a, a platform uh, that tries to bring therapy into the hands of, of the patients that need it. Um, and really therapy uh, and specifically uh, physical therapy, cognitive therapy um, to patients that require to recover uh, certain, for example, movements uh, or, or functions that they need to perform. Um, now, this could be after something like a neurological condition, um, like stroke, um, or uh, actually um, around things like in the MSK world, so musculoskeletal damage, uh, things like wrist fracture, for example, uh, that we look at. And we're looking to very much uh, bring the, the power of, of their rehab into their, in their own hands uh, and transition patients from the acute hospital environment uh, into the home environment. Could you tell us about your background and how you were creating Grippable, like, or how the idea evolved um, over time? Yeah, ha happy to. And I can say how I, I met Nicola and how we uh, you know, now work together uh, around it. Um, so my background uh, is, as, a, as you mentioned, a clinical neuroscientist. Um, so I was um, doing a PhD at Imperial College in, in neuroplasticity, uh, looking at, at biomarkers for brain uh, damage, brain recovery, uh, brain rewiring, um, and really looking at how, first of all, we can find biomarkers, but then how can we stimulate and improve uh, neuroplasticity? How can we actually get patients uh, recovering uh, potentially faster? And this is where we were doing a lot of fancy um, uh, sort of research uh, using, uh, you know, robotics, uh, VR systems, a lot of imaging techniques uh, around MRI, functional MRI, trying to combine all these wonderful engineering um, techniques uh, to try and support these patients beyond uh, just the provision of um, what the therapist is able to do um, when they're with the patient. And I realized very quickly, though we had all this fancy technology, um, actually none of it really um, ever transitioned into the real world. Um, you could have a, a half a million pound robot in your lab, but then you could go to the therapist working with our, our stroke patients, you know, in the hospital and go, well, do you want to come to the lab and put them in the, you know, in the robot? And of course the answer would be no, right? When do we have the time, uh, you know, to, to take patients out of, of this environment, put them into these things? When do we have the time to learn how to use a robot, right? And um, get going on that. And turns out also, you know, you pretty much need an engineer present at all times, right, to work out what, you know, what on earth is going on. Um, so this is where um, I decided to try and direct our research in, in a different sort of uh, pathway, which was rather than going top down and going, actually, we've got all these clever engineers, let's redesign and, you know, and build these features 
why don't we go bottom up? Why don't we actually try and build something that is uh, accessible and scalable into the current therapist environment? How do we actually empower our therapists to be able to use technology um, with their patients? So it's not something that's intimidating or overwhelming or too expensive uh, really to scale, but actually something that could be in the pocket of every single therapist and therefore could transfer into the hands and pocket of, of every single patient uh, you know, going through the system. And, and maybe just to give a bit of color on that, because this is obviously where our story sort of brings Nicola in. This is the environment we're talking about um, is, is relatively analog. When patients um, you know, come in, they have an acute event like a stroke. Uh, we do our assessments. We work out a, a recovery uh, plan for them. You know, the therapist sit there and say, this is what's wrong with the individual. This is how we believe we can now um, actually uh, get them on a pathway of recovery. Uh, but at that point, the, the equipment we use, as I said, is pretty outdated. You know, we tell patients you need to do thousands of repetitions every single day, right, to, to get yourself on a path of recovery. And I think everyone um, can relate to the fact that it's incredibly challenging uh, to do uh, exercise every single day, right? And especially if you've been told to do the same exercise for hours and hours on end, right? And we leave things like putty, stress balls, cones, wooden blocks, anything the therapist can get their hands on it is what's less with the patient. Now, Again, squeezing a stress ball for, for an hour uh, it is pretty mundane, right? And, and this is why we are looking to go, how do we level up from that, that stage? How do we get in our new sort of um, technology-driven world, and especially mobile technology-driven world, how do we level that up? And, um, and this is really where um, I began to explore our opportunity to embed technologies uh, in that space. And, and this is where I actually met Nicola as, a, as one of the leading therapists um, in London, if not the world, uh, and said, I've had this idea. Um, and at the time, I think we had a, a very basic uh, sort of a game that, that we were engaging patients with to try and stimulate those movements. And, um, and very kindly, uh, Nicola went, this maybe has some legs. And, uh, and we took it from there. As a climber, uh, I remember spending so much time squeezing balls and little hand toys to build my hands. Through, and I find that frustrating. Uh, so I can't imagine what patients are going through having to do who knows how many repetitions for hours. Um, Incredible. Uh, Nicola, it'd be wonderful to kind of see, hear your journey to get involved and kind of what you've taken in from your expertise into Grippable as well. Thank you. So Paul's completely right. Um, I was ambushed by him after I think I'd given a lecture at a congress or something like that. And uh, much as I kept saying, I don't know why you want to talk to me. I'm not a neuro rehab therapist. I come from a, a pl burns, plastics and orthopedics, a rheumatology background, a musculoskeletal background. Uh, he was very insistent. And actually, once I had seen the device and seen what it could do and saw his enthusiasm and vision, um, I was hooked. Um, and I really felt that Grippable had a long way to go. And I also felt that uh, Paul and then subsequently Mike, when I met him, who's our CTO, um, our clever engineer lead, who is the co-founder with Paul, they're very, very neuro rehab and neurologically based. And I actually felt having me around giving a bit of input, if they were happy to give me a voice, actually might find other avenues that Grippable as a concept could work. Because the minute I saw it, I could see straight away that it had huge uh, expanded um, roles in musculoskeletal uh, health, in uh, health prevention, in children's management. Um, so I was pretty hooked and we, we kept up a sort of meeting once in a while for a coffee for a couple of years as Mike and Paul were sort of emerging away from Imperial and into building their own, into their own uh, 
uh, company. And then I was just really, really fortunate that um, they asked me to join them. And uh, I, I was thrilled and it has been a really exciting journey. It continues to be an exciting journey. And for me, it seems to me that everything has all come together. So I, I've been qualified 32 years, started in neurology and then moved into musculoskeletal health. My master's degree was in um, research, clinical research methods, although that was a long time ago, but still there. Um, and I've had a career really, which has combined the clinical with the commercial. So I think, I think you know, back to the question you asked, what, what have I brought into Grippable? I keep the clinician, so the occupational therapist, very much at the core of the product, whether we're designing new games, thinking about add-ons, thinking about how the devices sit in the hand. Uh, but then I also coordinate all of the internal and external uh, research projects that are going on, and there is a huge amount. So I'm ne negotiating probably at the moment with over 35 institutions who are looking at using Grippable within their research. Uh, which, of course, it has a huge benefit for us. Um, and then, of course, coming in with my eyes a little bit open about the commercial world has also been very helpful moving into a, a startup company and uh, the, the shock of uh, needing to really think about finance and planning it wasn't there because I've been doing that for years, um, as well as leading teams and, um, you know, setting criteria. So it sort of feels that unknowingly my whole career and all the things that I've done have have just brought me to the right place at the right time well I hope Paul feels that it's brought me to the right place at the right time this is one of those themes that we've had a few times on the podcast which is it's not just about the gamification or the learning or everything else you've also got to make it work and get it out in front of people and get them using it so yeah it sounds like uh, he really needed you so. Absolutely. And um, I, I think Nicola touched on a great point there, which is, you know, one of the things that we are grounded in uh, always and, and, and will be always be grounded in is, is making sure we, we put that therapist, you know, uh, our, our users first, right? It's, we're not building games and we're not gamifying an environment that's, that's easy. It's about, you know, you, you have to think beyond the technology. You have to think um, really about accessibility, uh, about, um, you know, how you get this in, how do you scale it in an environment that is it's pretty technology adverse. And uh, as long as we keep focusing on that, and as long as we're not just approaching with, you know, a, a VR, AI, gamified, data-driven, um, you know, system, uh, but actually, you know, speaking a language that, that people can relate to, um, that, that is one of our, our critical drivers. And I think one of the things, again, picking up what Paul said, one of the things that makes us unique is that all of the activities that we have built, games that we've built onto our platform, have all started with Paul and I nutting out a, a user. So who is it? Is it a 40-year-old stroke patient who you know, loves um, normally sport and is very frustrated and needs to work on their supination and their release of grip? And, and we give a whole persona to this, to this situation. Uh, or is it a child with something? Or is it a, a musculoskeletal? So we we very much bring to our software team the therapeutic goals that we are trying to achieve, whether that be with physical or cognitive goals, or a combination of the two. And then we build the games from there upwards. We're not looking at games that are out there and thinking, oh, now how can we make this square square block fit into a circle? You know, a, a round hole. Um, so we're not sort of trying to push something that was designed for 
enjoyment gamification purposes, um, entertainment, into a therapeutic environment. We're trying to use the best of entertainment and reward and all of those other features that we know works, but building bottom up, thinking always at the core, what does the therapist want and what does the patient need? And I think that makes a big difference. A question for you there then. So you're talking about the physical cognitive goals for that persona or real patient. In that design phase, when you're thinking about that, are you also thinking about the emotional context? And, and what does that look like in your design process? I think actually just to, to pull it back a little bit, I think one of the things to, to make very clear in, in, you know, when we go into this design process and build, as, as Nicola mentions, you know, we really think about that persona. Um, the challenge we have, and it's the biggest challenge within what we're trying to develop is we have so many personas. Now, you know, when you're designing uh, games, you know, traditionally, maybe you're looking at a, a you know, a target market, right? 21 to 25 year old male, uh, you know, doing X, wanting to do X, Y, and Z, or even if you're looking at FinTech or whatever, right, you, you come in and especially some of the designers that, that we've worked with, um, you know, in the past, you know, we try and narrow these, these personas down. Of course, what Nicola and I do is go, right, well, you know, we've got a platform for a 85 year old stroke patient with dementia that also needs to work for a three-year-old child with cerebral palsy, right? And it needs to work for a teenager that's had a, a wrist fracture from a rugby, you know, incident, right? And, or it's, a, you know, anything in between, right? Th those conditions. So you're dealing with different levels of cognition. You're dealing with personalities. You're dealing with age. And, and actually, as you just said there, that final one is you're dealing with emotions, which when you, when you think about what these people have gone through, um, not only is incredibly challenging, but also, again, is incredibly different. The, the emotions going through, um, uh, you know, an 80-year-old stroke patient suddenly being, you know, removed from her family, turning up in, a, in a, a clinical environment that she might not remember that she turned up in, right? Um, compared to, as I say, a, a child that's learning um, and, and is constantly there and is just happy that they're doing something and they don't know maybe that they're not able to do things, you know, properly at that stage, right? Or, as I said, to maybe, uh, you know, someone just being frustrated, right? Oh, God, I'm trapped at home. That's so annoying. Um, actually, we do need to think about that very carefully. And we do need to build that, not in just to the, the games we develop, but how we gamify the platform uh, as a whole, right? And I think that's one thing also to, to touch on, which is the two parts of the platform that the, the word gamification might be used for is, one is the actual games, but then is how do we gamify someone's recovery journey? because they're on a journey of recovery. And of course, you know, one of the, the, the classic things in gamification is a journey. Um, and, and how do you take someone through a journey through the game? There's a mirror there between someone going, right, I'm on, I'm on base one, right? I'm on, on base point one of my rehabilitation journey. And we have to be able to navigate them through almost that, that whole game, right, that, that they go through on, on their recovery journey. I completely agree. Before we go deeper into the gamification or the frameworks that you use to create the gamification, can you paint a picture to our listeners about what, I'm not saying there is an average experience for someone, but what could an experience look like that you go through when you engage with Grippable? Can I take that one, Paul? Please do. Um, so one of the things, again, that's unique about Grippable is that it is absolutely individually tailored to each user. So at the moment, Grippable, the platform and the, the uh, handheld sensor is able to detect grip and release 
and then three wrist and forearm movements, extension, flexion, radial ulnar deviation, and supination, pronation. And every single patient or user who is uploaded onto the system will be calibrated in terms of what they can do as an individual on that particular parameter. And then their games will take those parameters. So if you can manage, you know, 3.2 kilos of grip and you're able to release to 60%, then when they go through into the games, that is what is recruited, which is what makes it so utterly personal. And then the way that we can manage it in answer to your question is through that journey, as they improve, not only can they go up in the levels within the games in terms of they get harder with length, with cognition, with physical demand, but they also can recalibrate. So if that 3.2 kilos has now become eight kilos, all of a sudden you've got the same level of challenge as you had in the first place. So you don't have that problem that we often have with rehabilitation, where if you're giving somebody putty or something to squeeze, you know, we have to have a constant challenge in order to meet a therapeutic goal. It can't just plateau. So we've built the platform in order that it can follow the patient through their journey and just constantly recalibrate to what they are capable of in the hope that that just keeps them motivated and uh, and engaged so device that you have to uh, kind of sense these different movements and changes how does that relate to what some how someone will control the game i guess that's the picture i'd love you to paint so that people can understand how this device which can track everything objectively uh, monitor different pressure how does that relate to someone playing the game uh, so we've built uh, 12 different games um, and exactly as Paul said, they have such a variety. So just to give you an example, if, if the therapeutic goal is to improve somebody's controlled grip and release, that transition between opening and closing their hand, then we would select specific activities. So if I give you a, an example of probably the one that Paul very first showed me, because I think, am I right, Paul? That was really one of the very early prototypes was balloon buddies. Um, so it is as simple as you are an owl suspended from a, a hot air balloon. And as you squeeze, the balloon inflates and it lifts you up. And as you release, the balloon deflates and you float down and you have to catch stars in a particular orientation of movement. As simple as that. Does that sort of help? And the same thing would be with movements. So if you're trying to get something to go left to right, you would maybe pronate, supinate. So maybe just to, to give uh, some more clarity on that. Um, so when, when we talk about the, the different movements that the device can do for the listener, have our grip and release, uh, but things like pronation, supination, forgive me, Nicola, therapist language for, you know, moving something left and right, you know, in terms of your, your hand moving up and down or your palm going up and down or your wrist going up and down. Um, and, and so this is where um, we try and actually um, building uh, on the platform is almost like a, a mini app store in itself right which is we need to have a growing uh, content base on there to make sure that every time we have new movements coming in that we want to record every time we have a new type of patient coming on board with different cognitive abilities right that there is a a game on there that hooks them to be able to do what we want them to do for the period that we want them to do it for but actually they enjoy and again i think that is one of the the, the critical things for us in, in terms of how we develop and design our games which is making sure that we are always thinking uh, about 
um, uh, about uh, not only just in-game leveling up in terms of our our challenge point and our difficulty as the levels get harder, but actually um, the game's differentiate cognitive demand. So as Nicola said, you know, one of the the more simple games we started with was and as you grip something goes up as you release you can start throwing in distractors you know but actually that could be too challenging for a patient with severe neurodisability so we, we are able to scale that right back and and you know one of the the most popular uh, you know activities for for certain patient groups around that is is still something that is a game but is actually just a slideshow right it's it's grip and release we can go into real depths of gamification right and and you can go into to virtual worlds, right? 3D worlds, you can embed people into, into this whole you know, virtual environment. Giving a, a, a three-year-old pediatric child who hasn't ever realized that she can control a tablet, the opportunity to grip something with a, a little amount of, of grip versus you know, asking her to squeeze a bit of putty and, and allowing her to flick through a um, you know, hundred photos of cats, she will flick through and do a hundred movements for you to see those hundred cats. Right. And and actually, we might think that's incredibly simple to, to come up with and design, but there's a hell of a lot of work that goes into us or our product around not over engineering and actually putting a lot of thought into how do you make something so simple so that that people see it as a game and actually engage with it and, and do, again, what we want them to do, you know, through the system. And of course, we can go all the way to the other end, right, where we do have um, our own 3D virtual worlds, uh, you know, on the platform where we can fly birds around mountains and all these sorts of things. Um, that is a level up of, of those different activities, if, if, if that makes sense. I was just going to give you an example, actually. I was just talking to an occupational therapist, a neuro-occupational therapist, um, a couple of days ago. And she had been working with a lady with quite a, following a quite a, a severe brain tumour. And she's been trying to get her to, she's got a flicker of movement in her hand. And she's trying to incentivize her to, to utilize this to try and do more. But I mean, she can't do anything. She can't pick anything up. She can't hold putty. She can't squeeze anything. So in her head, it is utterly a waste of time. It's, it's so depressing that all she can do is literally this. And this occupational therapist gave her grippable. Um, and because we can detect as little as 62 grams of change and as six, low as 62 grams of movement, tiny, tiny movements, this lady for the first time could see a cause and effect. She burst into tears. She was overwhelmed with actually seeing that what she could do was having an effect on a screen. It was profound. And that's, that's really because Paul and the team have invented these activities that are not overly complicated they don't have a huge stress in terms of cognition or you know, all the different things you need to do to visually see these complex moving items. And finally, she had something that could show her that her rehabilitation was actually having an effect. Creating a feedback loop, I think, is incredibly important. And the way, especially to visualize that as well. What I want to understand is your journey then, because the first game you mentioned seemed to be very much device functionality led that create resulted in the game design of the balloon and up and down. And you've transitioned to be very much outcome-led game design or persona-led game design. So how did that journey happen in your understanding of how game design works? And do you use any particular frameworks around your game design principles? Um, in terms of where we started, um, you know, we started at the absolute basics because, to be honest, um, you know, you've got to start somewhere, right? And, uh, 
and you've got to you know be able to use the resources that you have and and and, and you know with a limited amount of, of grant funding you, you kind of go right we know we want to to look at a training of a, a certain function you know grip strength right well what game you know can we use around that and that's that's where initially we began but then we really began to um, leverage probably our, our work around the neuroscience uh, you know side of it and and we didn't necessarily approach um, in the early days things around right we're you know we're gamifying it and, and what are the gamification principles it was much more um, right here are our patients the persona side uh, and also here are all the neuroscience cognitive principles that we work with you know day to day already so you know again things like um that maybe on the more gamification side when you're avoiding objects you know doing something things like that for, for me that is you know breaking down into attention factors you know things like alerting orienting executive function uh, those are the sort of components that that we looked at and went well how do we stimulate someone's executive function how do we stimulate someone's um ability to to orient right and, and go around that and i'm sure this is where a lot of these principles you know come through right in, in terms of that but I don't think uh, we originally were there going, oh, here are some, you know, gamification principles. We were kind of going, how do we get our neuroscience principles uh, and make it fun, right? And of course, as you then expand your knowledge, <laughs> um, uh, you go, oh, actually, okay, all these publications on gamification, we're talking the same language eventually. Um, uh, that's sort of where we really began it and started. And of course, that's where you, you begin to, to level up, uh, you know, through, uh, sorry, literally for the games, you know, create your levels. You begin to start increasing the cognitive load. You begin to start increasing all those points on those cognitive factors, right, the, that you want data yeah. on coming back. And as I said, you know, as um, uncoincidental luck would have it, yeah, you know, <laughs> the, the gamification principles, right, that then you, uh, then you read about. Uh, maybe, maybe just touch a, a point on some of the more detailed than, than principles we looked at um, definitely originally. And it's something that we want to keep working on and expanding. Um, you know, some of the things we've looked at is, for example, that the challenge point framework, you know, how do we hold people within a, a state of flow? Um, and how do we make sure that, again, we're not over uh, stimulating or, or making things over complicated um, for, for patients coming onto our platform? But how do we make sure that it's not boring and make sure actually that, that they are hooked? So we have looked at a challenge point framework. We've looked at things like um, what we call contextual interference. Um, so, so making sure actually that we, we vary the practice um, and actually that we know that learning um, occurs very much on a basis that you have to mix it up uh, for that individual. You can't just tell them to do the same thing. And, and can we do that through games, right? Can we make sure um, that you know, one level we, we, we're training a few of those cognitive principles and the next one is slightly different or again, mixing up the movements or the amount of strength that's needed. Those are the sorts of things that, that keep people hooked, but also they're the things that actually stimulate neuroplasticity from my sort of background on the neuro side. And then there are a few other ones around that, that sort of skill level versus challenge. Um, we're, we're looking to, to optimize that through our own, you know, without getting um, again too, um, too into the future, but where we go into machine learning or, or AI systems, right? And we're learning, how's that patient interacting? Was it a bit too hard? Okay, well, how do we make it slightly easier at the next level? Now, the level to the patient, patient A and patient B, it, it, they're both level two, but actually level two for patient A and patient B might be very different. And that is based on the fact of how they interacted with level one. And again, the, the final thing just around, you know, things where we are, are looking to mirror, um, you know, what, what obviously Nicola's expertise is in, which is on that therapist side and all the principles of therapy, which is how do you show progress? How do you how do you motivate people just on their look, your grip strength has gone up by two kilos, right? Or your range of motion has, has improved by 10 degrees. 
similarly, we try and embed that into the, the games, you know, with for a very basic one for, for my background on the neuroscience side is, is reps, right? How many repetitions have you done? And that's something that we might count when we're with a patient face to face with them. But it's something we can put into the games as well. You've just achieved 40 repetitions, right, of a certain movement. Now, that's different from, you know, the stars you've collected in the game. That might be different from whatever game dynamic that we've encouraged. You know, how many things have you, you shot down? Um, but that's part of probably the wider gamification of the platform, uh, if that makes sense, to, as I said, try and loop it in or hook it more towards their, their recovery journey and the progress that they're, they're seeing there. And I think the other thing moving on from that is around all of the theory of reward and uh, tracking. So one of the frustrations for me as a therapist is that I know that my job is essentially to empower my patients to do their rehab. I can't tell you how many people have ended up in my clinic saying, oh, physio doesn't work. Well, physio does work, but only if you do it. Uh, I mean, obviously, you have to have a decent physio in the first place or OT. Same thing. But um, the ability for the patient and for the therapist to be able to track and visualize someone's rehab behaviors between actual face-to-face or of course we're talking about remote therapies these days as well uh, between you know one-on-one engagement is really powerful so whereas previously if somebody came into my clinic and, and I really wanted to do a strengthening program with them and I gave them putty or a sponge or whatever it is and they came back in two weeks time and I remeasured them and they hadn't got any better and they say, but I've been doing it. There's always that niggle of a thought in my head is, have they really? Because we know that, I mean, look in the World Health Organization, you know, review on rehabilitation, only between 30 and 50% of patients after a few weeks are still doing what they've been told to do. So I've always got that niggly thing. And I've time and time again, I've heard the, the very lovely surgeons I work with, if something doesn't work, they just blame the patient. So the glorious thing about Grippable is that, the patient can go, see, this is what I've done. So if it's not working, we need to rethink. We need to go on a different approach. Something else needs to change or I need to be doing something different. And on the converse, you can begin to see the relationship between the efforts that they're making and their recovery. So it's that transparency and that ability to share a language between therapist and user, therapist and patient, is, is, is revolutionary because we don't, you just haven't had that to date. You're building an extra level of trust and rapport yeah. there between therapist and end user. I like that a lot. I, I was just wondering with the, you've got your increase in grip strength and things. Apart from the stats, how are you feeding that back to the patients? Are you showing them, like, for instance, this week, now you've reached the point where you can crush a boiled egg or watermelon? What are, what are we doing in the game? Are we making that fun? Uh, the reason I'm smiling is I remember one of the absolute first uh, sort of demos we did in the basement of Imperial College was, uh, you know, squeeze this device and a, and a digital egg cracks. So we moved away from there. I don't remember why, because clearly it's a great idea. But um, uh, but yes, at, at the moment, I think, and again, I, I might let Nissa talk to this one more, but we, we try and hold it to the, the clinical principles that already exist in terms of gold standard. And, and that is why we go for what is your grip strength? Because that's what the therapist, you know, is used to reporting back. We, we have to be able to measure and act as a gold standard clinical tool, right? And that means um, replicating gold standard, and but then improving and increasing beyond it. But of course, we also do want to make it fun. 
right? So we do want to relate it to that. And there are ways that we do that through the, the, the gaming side, whether it's, you know, you've been able to hit something that you've never been able to hit before, or, or you've moved to a, a, you know, an area of the screen that you've never been able to do before. Um, but it's it's a mixture of that clinical and that gamified side that, that we have to do to make sure that we don't lose that, that clinical grounding. I think the other thing that we've not mentioned, we've talked a lot, obviously, uh, on this podcast, we've talked about gamification. Of course we have. But that is actually only one of the functionalities of Grippable. There's another whole element of objective measurement. So the gold standard tool, hundreds and thousands of dynamometers out there in the field with people measuring single voluntary contraction in terms of giving an insight into somebody's ability to function because we know grip strength is an important thing for function but actually what the literature is beginning to say is that your ability to do a single maximum grip is probably not that well correlated with how you function getting dressed you know cooking yourself a meal driving to the supermarket, getting things off the shelf. You know, there are all sorts of other aspects of grip that are really important. Sustained grip, a longer 10 second. There's no point if I go to the car, pick up my shopping and have to carry a shopping bag all the way into my kitchen or up three flights of stairs, if all I can do is hold on to something for three seconds. I need to know what somebody's capability is over a sustained period of time and then repeating. And then I'm thinking about my musicians. It's all very well them being initially strong, but if they can't keep going and keep going and keep going, they can't play, they can't perform. So what we've done with Grippable is we've built um, on the platform the ability to test a whole variety of different aspects of grip that in my belief, it's the first time a relatively low cost device that can be widely used in clinical uh, environments will be able to objectively measure all of these different parameters of grip. And then we'll be able to answer your question, which was, you know, how does this relate to somebody's ability to function? Expand on that as well. Fascinated there. So it's a challenge I see in a lot of projects I work on is that not only are sometimes the most gold standard functional actor measures very specific to the measure in a clinical setting, as opposed to real life validity, but also people hate going on a program and having to be tested every four weeks or maybe every time they engage in it. Do you think games that involve some element of functional measure could replace what is currently the gold standards of things like dynamometer grip, maybe sit to stand, all those kind of things we use within MSK and physiotherapy. So people feel like they're just integrating the outcome measure within the activity they're doing rather than seeing outcome measurement and therapy as two different things. Yes, I do. Mitchell and I might be on slightly different ones here. This is where I come in a CEO mode and go, yes, absolutely. Right. And this is what we're building. And, and of course, where Nicola grounds me a bit is around the, yes, you can, but never forget where we are and where we're starting and how we're transitioning, right? That we don't lose that clinical um, validity and input. And, and there is an element there of you don't always want to necessarily have a game that trains the same outcome you're looking at, because then you only improve that outcome right? Um, or sorry, you only improve what you're doing on that game, but actually how does it translate to an outcome that's actually much wider? Um, and we don't want to get sucked into that, um, definitely. And this is often why you don't have an assessment that's the same uh, as, as the activity that you're doing. But I would argue there is a hell of a lot of, um, of opportunity 
to make sure that people don't realize that they're doing never mind therapy and assessments and we can feed that information back and there's work we're doing now around um, you know capturing things like patient reported outcomes uh, as well right and and actually and again i am going into the, the bigger vision mode here right now with our platform to to grow it in a way and get a level of, of information on people that no one's ever done before you know it doesn't matter if you're the quarter of a million pound robot you know in the hospital so what is that game they've been playing and, and suddenly what is it correlating to the fact that their their outcome measure that we've previously done clinically actually it correlates fantastically and we didn't know that so maybe that is a a correlation we can use and and i think that is the really exciting part for me which is no one has ever had this information before and we are building an opportunity not only to harvest it but but then to gain insight from it and of course you can start directing your gamification and based right on on your own data coming through and you and you don't need you know uh, um uh, info, you know uh, historical uh, you know work necessarily i think this is one of the best bits about gamification is is it's such a good way to gather big data hmm. yeah you've made an engaging way to get that data that will make things more accurate which means we can deliver something even better and more personalized. But back to the original thing is there is definite value of having a separation between objective assessment and games because you because of the learning effect, which is well understood. But I think what we're heading towards is to try and make our games more and more replicate everyday functions. And we're looking at how we can actually have people gamifying what they normally do or what they want to do so i've been again using with some of my cello players um i've been using instead of them holding the neck of the cello and compressing each individual finger in the presence of persistent pain i want to break that associate pain association which again is all down to all this neuroplasticity but what I find is if I get them doing the identical movement, but they're holding grippable and they're playing games, lo and behold, it doesn't hurt. So, you know, I can then transfer that straight back onto the cello. And, and I think this is what we're trying to move more and more towards as we develop more hardware, more sensors, more games, is that they will close more closely and more closely replicate actual function. So the carryover, which we know at the moment is there, but it becomes more transparent because a lot of the time it's contextualized with an activity what you're doing is recontextualizing the movement and function with a different activity and the secret is then the psychology and making people realize it's the same movement so why should you have pain in that in that daily activity you do exactly. that's the next trick and that's another step would, in the you, journey. would you like to come and join me in my clinic i definitely <laughs> need another therapist and this is the joy of being an ot because we're 50 percent trained in mental health and 50 percent in physical health so it doesn't frighten me that I need to deal with all of these pain associations and the thought viruses and all the anxieties and all of those sorts of things, because actually that's what persistent pain does. And grippable is an absolute joy in terms of breaking down those pathways. Last few minutes, it'd be great to know what hasn't worked in terms of your gamification as well. Um, it's been great to hear your journey, the frameworks you've built, how you've led your game design, but other things just hasn't worked at all. And do you know why? maybe two examples in my head you know there's been a few things that we've uh, developed out that that haven't then made it onto the platform necessarily just now uh, you know through feedback from our initial patient sort of engagement my my guess really would be all reflecting on those it's about you know that the, there maybe wasn't enough direction you know within those and, and and this is the hard balance that we always play right do, do we make things too simple 
Do we need to make sure actually that we're making them uh, or we have enough guidance through them? Uh, is the is the clear objective there for that individual? Because you have patients with high cognition that go, well, I don't want to do this thing. How the hell does that relate to anything that I, you know, recover with, you know, or, or want to recover, right? And and actually, there wasn't enough guidance there to go. Well, just you know, you you are you know doing this relatively what you think is maybe childish activity, but actually this does relate to something that you've you know recorded that you want to recover, right? And and getting those things across. So I think that's something that we need to learn from, uh, and then that we need to 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 really push for. And I think you know in terms of our our future development. Um, you know, we're looking at things like social gaming and, and things like this, you know, connecting patients, you know, to one another. I think all those building blocks of those future games have to be reliant on, on some of these learnings. You know, how do you make sure you are um, you're getting people to realize that what they're doing is, is beneficial to them? And um, and there's ways of doing that that, you know, could be through community, for example. Right. And, and getting people to understand. And well, actually, I use this activity and it resulted in this. Right. Don't you know, don't just write it off. So I think I think the one that I would would suggest that uh, is that some of our games are so good and so engaging that people have started to think of it as a gaming entertainment unit. And it's not. It is rehabilitation device. And so you get some comments back going, well, you know, um, I got bored with it after three weeks or I get more sort of stimulation from the Nintendo Wii game that I play. And of course, people are losing sight because our games are so good. They don't feel like you're doing therapy and rehabilitation. They're being benchmarked against those games that are out there for entertainment. If that, and so there is that little disconnect of people are losing sight of the fact that, you know, if you weren't doing this, you'd be squeezing putty. There's no success measure on that in nice guidelines, but that should be a success measure. <laughs> yeah. Paul, Nicola, it's been fantastic to have you on here. There are so many more questions that I know Pete and I would love to ask you. We will be inviting you back next year. Uh, but in the meantime, it's been wonderful to have you share all your insight and, uh, and journey about creating gamification around persona-led game design, uh, challenge point frameworks. Uh, but thank you both for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs>